morning as we continue in our study of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9 this morning. If you'll turn there with me in the Word of God, we'll be looking as we conclude out, uh, round out a section of Scripture that we've been in the last three weeks. And uh, this morning we'll be putting an exclamation point on this passage that Jesus gives to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to take up our cross and to follow Him. And the message this morning is entitled, Externalism Exposed. Externalism Exposed. And our text this morning is Matthew chapter 9, all the way down through verse 17. So if you'll join me there in the Word of God, and let's read it together. Beginning there in verse 9, And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose, and he followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and then the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are then preserved. Well, this is the Word of God for you, His people. This morning, as we look into the Word of God, we are asking the Lord to show us our hearts in light of the text. And that's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. This is a pivotal text. There's a number, all of the texts of Scripture, of course, are important. And even within the study of Matthew's Gospel, all of them are equally inspired and important. But when we, when we come to these calls to discipleship, and there's more in the Gospel of Matthew, we need to slow down. We need to tread carefully, and we need to examine our lives in light of the text. We don't just want to learn about Matthew's discipleship, but we want to ask the Lord, Lord, am I a disciple? Are we disciples? And does our life look like what we see in your call? And that's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. And we can consider the question where God, Jesus extends the call to Matthew to come immediately Follow me. I've got some questions I want us to consider this morning as we begin and as we begin the message. Are you a follower? Number one, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Everybody in this part of the country would probably readily admit that they are a Christian in some form, in some way, if you were to ask them that question. And so that's why I phrase it in the language of the text. Are you a follower or are you a disciple of Jesus? Let's ask ourselves, let's go in a little bit diagnostically a little bit further. If that answer is yes, then I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit help illumine your heart and your mind. How has the Lord worked in your life this week? 
Who has following Christ introduced you to? Where has following Christ taken you this week? What has following Christ maybe subjected you to? Because of your discipleship, because of your faith and following him, you've been subjected to some things and had to make an awkward stand or make a decision in some way. How has following Christ, how has your following Christ impacted someone else? And then what specific truths have you learned from his word? Friends, there are many more questions that we could ask ourselves, but if we do not examine ourselves in light of scripture, we are fools of the most of the utmost kind. It's not enough to simply hear the word of Christ, but we must ask the Lord, Lord, let me reflect upon these calls to discipleship that we see in the Gospels. Let me examine my profession of faith, in my faith life, in my apprenticeship to Christ in light of these. Now, to be a disciple is to be a learner, as we've been teaching and discussing the last number of weeks. And a learner is a disciple. A disciple is a learner. And as soon as Matthew is called to follow Christ, he immediately begins to learn. The first lesson we saw in verse 9 is that radical change is expected. Radical change is expected. And the Bible tells us, and we studied, that Matthew immediately stands and he forsakes his calling as a tax collector. He doesn't stop and analyze how this decision will affect his future, his security, his investments, or any of those things. He hears the call of Christ and he responds. Have you responded in that same way to the call of Christ? Has the call of Christ for you meant that your life changed radically? It's not that way for everyone. But for many of you, particularly the older you get, if you're a child, it's a call to forsake your sins and your self-reliance and your self-trust, which is something all of us must do for sure. The older you get in life, the more comfortable you get in life, the more secure you get in life, maybe if you hear the gospel call afresh and anew, friends, it's going to be game-changing. It's going to change everything, spiritually and naturally, in your life. How many of you have heard the call of Christ well into your 20s, your 30s, and your 40s, and you've thought to yourself, maybe some more convenient day, maybe some other time will I respond to this call? Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 answers the question that many people have, when they say, but yes, if I follow Christ, what if? And there's all types of what ifs that begin to come into their mind. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus answers this. We'll get to it in the future for sure. But he says, everyone who has forsaken houses, family, and he includes in that list brothers, sisters, fathers, mother, lands for my sake, they shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. And what Jesus is saying is for you to follow him does not mean that you lose out. But you gain everything. Jesus answers the question, the fear that most people have. If I do this, if I follow Jesus, it may mean that I lose out. Friend, I want you to know, no, listen, everything is thrown in in Christ. It may not mean that you have everything in this life that you want. But listen, you will not, you will not be the loser for it. Christ, following Christ, the Christ-like life is the blessed life. And Jesus tells us, whether it's in this life or the future, and he's mainly looking in the future, you will receive an investment of a hundredfold. Man, you look at Bitcoin right now, there's people who lost money on money that doesn't exist, right? You start looking at investments and you start looking at, well, where should I put my money and those types of things? Is there any investment that's like this investment? 
you shall receive a hundredfold. Friends, you can take this to the bank and you can rest in the sure word of Christ. The first lesson that Matthew learns in his discipleship is that it's going to cost him everything. Secondly, we've seen that Matthew following Christ means that it loves, he loves sinners. Following Christ means loving the sinners and the lost in his life of which he was just one. In Luke chapter 5, verse 29, Luke's account of this text tells us that Matthew makes a great feast in his own home. And we saw this last week together in great detail. In fact, one commentator says this, that this was Matthew's farewell dinner, in one sense, to his friends and comrades as he takes up his cross and follows Christ. And he knows that there's going to be a severing of life and relationship, ultimately, if they do not follow Christ as he has. And he loves them. And so Christ has opened his heart and he has opened his home. And he desires to reach his friends. Experts tell us that the most evangelistic that we are in our discipleship is right after we come to faith in Christ. Mysteriously, unusually, as we grow in grace and as we grow in the things of the Lord, paradoxically, our zeal for the lost wanes. Now, just because I said that, just because it's a fact, doesn't mean it's okay. It's just, it's just practical. It, it happens. We begin to exalt in the glories of Christ. We begin to grow in doctrine. We begin to feed our souls, all of which is good. But church, if there's not a release valve, if there's not an outlet point, if there's not a learning so that we can then teach, making, becoming a disciple who is a disciple of Christ so that we can then make disciples, then, it, then we just become eggheads. And this becomes a country club. And we become those who are grow in the things of the Lord but if there's no release valve, if there's no intent to go and to teach others also, as Paul taught Timothy, then friends, we're not following Jesus as he has designed for us. Matthew immediately begins to reach the lost. The third lesson of discipleship is as Matthew quickly in this text follows Christ, takes up his cross, and by faith follows him, is that following Christ, he learns, often causes you to be hated. And we saw that in verse 11. The Pharisees saw it. They said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Number four, the fourth quick lesson that Matthew immediately begins to learn is that Jesus responds or Jesus opposes the proud and the self-righteous. We saw that in verses 12 and 13. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go then, for, therefore, and learn what this is. This means. And we saw that Jesus cannot help people who do not recognize their need for Christ. You could say it like this the only people that, that Christ can't change or save are those who are, quote, full of themselves. And I say that facetiously. God certainly delights in calling the hardest, the most unreachable to himself, as he did the Apostle Paul, who was once Saul, the most Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul described himself. But you understand the principle. Those who don't see their need of Christ don't come to him. And so Matthew learns that to follow Jesus means to call sinners to himself. He is the great physician of the soul. James chapter 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This morning, this is gospel news. This is good news. This is good news for you who are addicted to sin or have chains of sin upon your life that you're constantly battling with or dealing with. Friends, this is good news. Come to Jesus and your burden will be made light. Come to him. This is also good news for those of you who can't think of any sins or strongholds in your life. Your self-righteousness. He came to save you from that as well. 
Jesus came to save you not only from addictions. Jesus came to save you from your righteousness, which is a filthy rag in God's sight. And so Matthew learns very quickly as he begins to follow Jesus to love people who are sick with sin. One commentator says this. He says, the object of men's repentance and God's forgiveness is that, that the dual theme of the gospel, men must turn from sin in order for God to forgive and to save them. The only people who ever receive salvation and enter God's kingdom are those who acknowledge their sinfulness and repent of it. And the problem, as we'll see in just a moment as well, this familiar theme, but yet a theme that extends 2,000 years later, friends, to this morning, right here in this room and in this town and in this nation, is that many are lost. They're on the Broadway. They're on their way to hell because of their righteousness. And so here, Jesus mentions Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And if we read it too quickly, if we read it fast, we'll think, well, that's just some random cross-reference or that's just a, something way back there in the Old Testament or that's some passage way back there. But friends, it means something. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus quotes him, he says um, in the passage, I desire mercy, verse 13, and not sacrifice. Jesus is expressing the motive or his method of operating in the same way that the prophet Hosea loved and sought after his his wife, who was a harlot in the Old Testament, named Gomer. Interesting name for a female, for a lady, but of course, a different culture, a different context. If you know the background, we don't have time to unfold the whole passage. But Hosea loved his wife, who was unfaithful to him. Hosea continued to seek after her, to love her. And she continued to abandon him and, and not be faithful to him. And when we study that passage, we understand that Hosea continually loved and sought after her, even reaching the point, don't miss this, even reaching the point that he paid the slave's price to buy her back, to buy her back. Think about that. So when Jesus invokes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he's invoking a whole realm of an Old Testament passage that explains to the Pharisees and the scribes that are there that day, in the same way, like Hosea sought after his unfaithful spouse, his wife, so I have come as the great physician to seek and to save those who've been unfaithful to me, the Lord their God. Friends, this is gospel news. This is good news. This is the hope that we have in Christ. For none of us have only ever loved the Lord our God as we have all. Jesus constantly tells us to examine our hearts even when we are born again and in Christ. In James chapter 4, he tells us to watch our hearts for idols and worldliness of things that we love more than we love the Lord our God. A spiritual quote, a spiritual adultery. As a matter of fact, turn there with me just very briefly. James chapter 4. I, I want to nail this point home. I I'm afraid some of you listen to this and you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the... We don't, we don't quite understand the seriousness of it. I just want to point you to the authority of Scripture. I want you to see what the Word of God has to say about just how serious this is, not only to the scribes and the Pharisees who are lost and outside of Christ, but friends, this battle never ends. This is the, the battle of our lives as we grow in sanctification and in the things of the Lord. Turn with me, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1, describes it like this. Where do wars... And fights come from among you, within your person. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? 
making reference to the body. Now notice how James describes this spiritually. He says, you lust and you do not have. You murder in your heart. Jesus defines these things. No, they're not necessarily taking up the, the knife or the gun or some type of instrument and committing murder. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to think it, to dream of it, to, to think of it in your heart is the same as having done it. So James picks up on this as someone who heard Jesus teach that. And here James says, you lust in your heart and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it upon your pleasures or your lusts. Now notice this language that James uses here in verse 4. He calls them, he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he's speaking of a love in his heart, in the heart, for the system. In other words, he's not describing what Matthew was doing and having a feast and saying, I have a love for the lost and I want to reach them for Christ so that they may change. It's actually the inversion of that. It's being seduced by this world system of, of thinking that there's something greater beyond the call of Christ and constantly being called back into this things, the things of the world. So he says, adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, the first passage in Matthew is talking about in salvation. Here in this passage, we're talking about sanctification, but the issue is still the same. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so we see that very quickly, Matthew learns this lesson. This is serious issues of spiritual adultery in the heart. And the Pharisees and the scribes have no need for Christ. They are spiritual adulterers, if you will. They are lost and outside of Christ. So as we look into this text, we see Jesus tells them, just as Hosea loves Gomer, so I love the lost. I've come in to seek and to save the lost. And notice the command that Jesus gives in our text. He says, go and learn what this means. What's Jesus doing here? Well, the, the tradition of the rabbis would be this. If a student came to them and they decided to get snarky, and maybe the student was found to have some arrogance within them, maybe they, as often students often do, they try to ask a trick question of Jesus. And maybe try to trip uh, the teacher, excuse me, and they try to trip him up. The teacher eruditely and astutely gives a comeback and says, now go and go learn what this means. In other words, this is something you should know but you're too foolish to know, so why don't you go study a little bit more, and then you can find these things out. I remember in Greek class in seminary, uh, there was a guy named James, and James was, was arrogant. James knew his stuff, and James often fell asleep in class, but James particularly delighted in trying to ask hard questions of the teacher. One, it's just obnoxious. And uh, James foolishly sat too close to the front, and the teacher was very reserved and very laid back, but he could have his moments. And James asked a, was asleep for half the class, and James woke up and asked some hard question of, of Mr. Tim. And, and finally, Mr. Tim had had his full, and he said, I tell you what, you stay awake in my class. And he gave him some kind of, and then, and then now go and learn what that means. If you don't know, I'm not going to tell you kind of thing. A very serious moment, just like this right here. When Jesus looks at them and says, now go and learn what that means, he rebukes the Pharisees and says, this is stuff you should know. 
This is the heart of God. This is the mission of the coming Messiah. This is why he promises in Genesis chapter 3 that he will send a redeemer to save us from our sins. And that redeemer is now here, and you're so blind you can't even see him. This is why he has come. So go and understand the meaning of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Go learn what this, this means. The Pharisees were professionals at their faith. They were professionals in religion. They were professionals in church attendance. They were professionals in giving. They were professionals in fasting. They were professionals in praying. And, and yet, you may say, so what was the problem? Exactly, those are things we do, aren't they? Good things, but they're not ultimate things. Don't miss this this morning. The spiritual disciplines of the Christian life are not the end. They're a means to an end. And there is nothing so spiritual in the Christian life that Satan himself cannot creep into and distort and make an idol. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Fasting is good, as we'll see in just a moment. But there's no need to fast when their Messiah is here. So we'll get, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So very quickly, Jesus is trying to explain his aim and his mission. And very quickly, Matthew understands very quickly what it means to be a true disciple. Now, in the Word of God, in fact, Matthew chapter 16, verse 6, there's a phrase that we see that Jesus calls the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven that begins to spread and to affect the whole lump. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we see that John the Baptist is the, the witness, the voice in the wilderness, preaching a message of repentance and turning to the Messiah, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John chapter 1 through 3 kind of explains us that the background details there as Jesus begins to come along. John the Baptist is preaching one day and he sees Jesus and he points everyone that's there that day. He says, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And he points his disciples to the Lamb of God, which is Jesus, and it's a symbolic transfer. It's a symbolic change that says, don't follow me, follow him. I am not that Savior. I am not that Lamb, but he is the Lamb. So follow him. And in our text, in verse 14, we begin to see that the text tells us that there are some disciples of John. Notice how they are distinguished. In the text, verse 14, the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, here in this text, this is the second time that the Pharisees have come, notice here, not to Jesus, but through a circuitous means. This is often a tactic of people who are less than forthright or less than bold. People like to attack the church in these ways as well. Oftentimes, as a child, if my father exercised discipline in some way or had to make some decision at the church, people would come ask me, a kid, a question about it. And I remember thinking, what do I know? I don't know. Like, I have no idea. My dad helped me to understand. He said, anytime somebody asks you a question that makes you uncomfortable, just say, I don't know. Ask my dad. And I, friends, that phrase I used more than you could imagine in my young life. I don't know, but ask my dad. This is just a fact of life. In fact, the golden rule of relationships in Matthew chapter 18 tells us to go to one another. If you have an alt or a fault, 
go to the person. Let's talk to the person. But don't go through a circuitous means. You say, well, Graham, why are you, that's kind of an aside. It's, it's the second time in this text that these people don't go to Jesus. They go through these young disciples. Now, I'm sure as Matthew hears that, he's like, man, I'm sure glad that Jesus eats with sinners in the first instance because he eats with someone like me. He'll save someone like me. This is the second time that it comes up that the Pharisees, Luke's, Luke's account tells us in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, that they actually came with these disciples of John, and they have emboldened them to ask what they think is a, another um, a, a question to try to trip them up. They love to fast. They have forgotten why we fast. What is the purpose of fasting? And so they, they come to these disciples of John and, and rile them up. These disciples of John are confused. If you know the background of this text, John is in prison. Matthew will later on unveil this for us. Their leader, if you will, is imprisoned. They are seemingly aimless and lost. They have not fully followed that call to leave John the Baptist and to go after Jesus. And so they're, they're if you will, they're immature. We don't know everything about them. All we know is that these are disciples of John. The Pharisees come in with their leaven and they begin to spread and cast doubt. These are the same Pharisees that John the Baptist back in Matthew chapter 3 said, bring forth fruits of repentance. If you say you're a disciple, then bring forth fruits of repentance that match that profession of faith that you say you have. And these Pharisees have not done that. They begin to bring these disciples of John. If you remember, John was a preacher of righteousness, but he was unusual, right? John the Baptist lived a minimalistic life. He had the requirements upon him of, of, of abstaining from things. He, he was an eater of, of locusts and honey. He just was an unusual man all the way around. He fasted, looking for the Messiah. But then something happened. The Messiah came. Friends, let's ask the question about fasting, because this is the, the catch-all. This, the, the, this is the question that they have. Why do we fast? And some people will see a text like this, and they'll say, see, exactly, fasting is external. Fasting is something that is hocus-pocus. Uh, fasting is uh, actually all the rage these days, if you think about intermittent fasting. It's actually kind of a shame that the only type of fasting that we're maybe conversant in uh, proficiently is intermittent fasting or fasting that affects our diet or the latest kind of rage or that type of thing. But friends, the purpose of fasting, which is very clear in the scriptures, is that we seek the heart of God. It's for him and him alone. It's not for men. Fasting is unseen, like much of our prayer lives is unseen. Fasting is not for men. When we are fasting, it's not so that people may see. And John the Baptist was someone who fasted, and that was within the will of God for him. But the fasting is for a purpose. It's seeking the face of God. And the whole point of this text is that the Lamb of God is here. The Messiah is here. Jesus says, I'm the great physician seeking after the lost, like, like Hosea seeks after Gomer, and the Pharisees are just blind to the fact that what it's all about. They're simply looking at the act of fasting as if that is some type of thing that merits righteousness with God. But let's not act like we don't think the same way today. Friends, there's things that you do and there's things that I do that if we're not careful, and if we do not guard our heart, we think gives us credence with God. God is more pleased with me when I do this. God, God, God sees these things, and, and he likes me a little bit more. If that's the way we think about our service to the Lord, about our Bible reading, about any of the spiritual disciplines like fasting that we see here in the text, we're missing it. And friends, it's so easy to do. You can begin to love God's word so much that you begin to analyze the, the leather. 
Do you like genuine? Do you like bonded? Do you like calf skin? Do you like goat skin or cowhide? If you begin to say, what are the margins like? You begin to get down, so down into the weeds that you forget of what it's all about. The Pharisees were just such people. They actually found their confidence and their trust and their security in their acts of righteousness. It gave them a sense of security. It gave them a sense of salvation. It gave them a sense of, of validation. And friends, if you were with us as we study back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls this out. He calls out three of them, fasting, giving, and praying. And he tells us that the Pharisees did this to be seen of men, not for God. It had nothing to do with, why, why do it for God? So that other people could see and think, wow, they're super disciples. They're super Christians, if you will. They are super seekers of God because they touted the horn. Let everyone know what they did, when they did it, and how they did it. The Pharisees were those who, if you were to ask them, how you doing? Exhausted. Oh, why are you exhausted? Spent all night praying. I've been fasting for a week now, and I am just wiped out. If you were to ask them how they were doing, they would, they would go on and on and on. It was over the top. And that is why Jesus says, listen, when you fast, no one should know. It's not to say like it's a vow of secrecy, but the point is you're not airing it out. In fact, go, go, go pinch your cheeks. Ladies, do y'all still do that at times? In other words, he said, listen, don't, don't look sullen. Don't act and, and look like you're weak, even if you are. Do it for God. Do it for God alone. And it's not about doing the act. It's about seeking him and asking him. In fact, Jesus tells us that there are certain situations that happen in our life that God is both sovereign, but yes, at the same time, this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. Fasting is not the issue. It's what it's used for and how it's used. And so here we see Jesus pulls the curtain back on external religion. That is to say, religion that is done in the flesh for the eyes of men and is not lived, as we saw in the scripture reading this morning, as unto the Lord. In fact, in Colossians 3, Paul may, gives instruction there that everything that we do as the church, as the body, is to be as unto the Lord and not unto men. That is not to say that men are, are just, uh, here's the point, men will be benefited by your service to the Lord, not hindered or hurt by it. Live for the greater goal that you live for an audience of one. Fast for the glory of God. Pray to the glory of God. But as we see in this text, Jesus very clearly gives three examples in verses 14 through 17 about how the newness of the kingdom of God, the work of Christ, is here. The Redeemer is here. And so come to Christ. Believe in Him. Repent of your sins and trust in Him and Him alone. So begin with me in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15. Jesus asks this question. He says to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He goes on to give an example, a second example of clothing. And then a third example, verse 17, of wineskins. Here's what Jesus is saying. The Redeemer is here. The bridegroom is here. He gives us two examples in this extensive text that he is the great physician of souls to seek and to save that which is lost. And here, the metaphor of the bridegroom who's come to call out his bride. 
as he calls Matthew, that's another member of the bride of Christ. Jesus is calling out his bride out of darkness and into light. He's the great, wonderful bridegroom that comes to seek the lost, which is his bride. Learn from Christ, friends, as we see here. This is, this is something completely new. Nothing connects with the way of Christ. Biblical, faith, grace-based Christianity is unlike any other system of religion on the face of the world. Every other quote-unquote religion says, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. Have you ever been around someone who's working for their salvation? They've got to one-up you all the time. They're not doing what they're doing for the Lord. They're just competing with you. And it turns into this competition contest and just back and forth and back and forth. Listen, true Christianity is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught and revealed through Scripture alone, for the, listen here, glory of God alone. Everything is for the glory of God alone. And when we look at Christ, this bridegroom who is new, who is here, he's our example, friends. Jesus is our example. He prays in John 17, I have glorified you on the earth. I have completed the work that you have given and called me to do. What an example for us to believe in him, to trust in him, and to follow after him as he lived for the glory of God. So may we live for the glory of God. Here in verse 15, as we conclude our thoughts this morning, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as that bridegroom is with them? But... The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus says, listen, he doesn't condemn fasting. It's just out of date right now. It's irrelevant right now because the bridegroom is here. He is the bridegroom. They are fellowshipping him with him. They are being taught by him. There's no need to fast when he's in their presence, when he is in their midst. And so Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and saying, listen, I'm the Messiah. I am why you fast. And the Pharisees were blind to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, blind to the fact that He was the Redeemer, He was the Messiah. If they believe in Jesus, listen, they'll have to give up all their self-righteousness. They'll have to say, I have to turn away from this and believe in Him, in Him alone. And friends, they were unwilling to do that. And you know what? Many people today are unwilling to come to Jesus because it means they'll have to admit something. It means they'll have to admit that they're a sinner. It means that they'll have to admit that they are self-righteous. It means that they will have to admit that they need something. That they'll have to trust and rest in Christ. One can imagine in their mind's eye at a, at a wedding ceremony how interesting and crazy it would be for them to wave a sign saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. And that's what Jesus is saying. True, but just not at this moment. The bridegroom, I, Jesus, am here in the sense of come to me, rest in me, don't work for me, come and learn from me directly. And then when I am gone from you, fasting, in his example here, will have a place in the spiritual disciplines. And don't let it become ultimate. Don't forget why we fast and why we pursue these things. It's for the glory of God alone. By the way, if you were going to try to compete with the Pharisees, you wouldn't be able to. These guys fasted, and one passage tells us twice a week, three times a week. These guys were on another level. This was their means of grace with God. They were taking stock that God would be pleased with them, as well as everyone else would be pleased with them by these acts and works of righteousness. Well, as we conclude this morning, I want to point you to the bridegroom, as I've been attempting to do throughout the message this morning. 
Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is all in all. All in all is Jesus, and Jesus is everything. Friends, we serve because we love Jesus. We pray because we love Jesus. We fast when the Lord calls us to because we love Jesus. We give because we love Christ. We serve him, not because we're laboring on uh, like a life sentence. We serve him with joy because we love Jesus. All in all is Jesus, and Jesus is everything. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can maybe write down this, just this little slight distinction, which is this. Everything we do in our discipleship with Christ is this, because of slash not in order to. Because of slash not in order to. Everything we do in our discipleship with Christ is because of what he's done for us. It's out of love, gratitude, joy. Not in order to get anything from him, gain favor with him. Not in order to feel a little more secure with him. Listen, this is the freedom that is in Christ. So as we conclude this morning, I want you to go back to the call to worship this morning, which is maybe in your Bible one page over, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Friends, some of you are listening to me this morning, and you have been under the bondage of legalism or externalism. What Jesus pulls back and exposes here, it's all of grace, not by how often you attend church or pray or give or those types of things. We do those things because of what Christ has done for us with joy, not in order to, not in order to gain anything from him. Matthew chapter 11, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the invitation of Jesus and respond appropriately, afresh and in repentance and trust. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we come to you having tasted and seen of the goodness of God. Father, we exalt in the precious, precious gospel. We exalt in the finished work of Christ. Father, guard our hearts from legalism. Guard our hearts for when we, like orphans, revert back to former behaviors. We can't quite yet trust in the fact that our adoptive parents truly love us, care for us, that food will always be at the table. Father, we act like that at times when we come and don't just rest in you and you alone. You've adopted us in Christ. Every single one of us that have come by grace alone, through faith alone. We were once orphans. And Father, you've given us a seat at the table. You've given us robes of righteousness. You've given us a home. You've given us your love. You are our, our Father. So Father, we come to you. We exalt in you. Lord, I, I pray very specifically for anyone laboring hard under the burden of sin. What Jesus just described and what we just read you will find rest for your souls when you come to faith in Christ. There are those, Lord, that may be here this morning who are constantly seeking, seeking. Maybe one more hit, one more time, one more Netflix, one more this, one more that, whatever. One more encounter, one more work of self-righteousness. Maybe then it will be fulfilling.
rest, peace. Father, I pray that whoever may be among us this morning, we invite them to come to Jesus and find that rest and that peace for their souls. Lord, we pray that they would find that in Christ alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.